Good morning, church. So I felt like there were two or three times where there was just a a clap wanting to get out that just couldn't quite make. Can we give some applause to the Lord this morning? Just give him a good round of applause. Act like you're glad to be here. Yes. Fellowship Center, can you clap over there? Give us a round of applause. Just I know you're with us. There you go. I can hear you slightly. Uh, clap at home for all of you that are following along. We are excited about being here today. And, you know, I was uh, I was not pleasantly surprised. I was just pleasantly uh, uplifted last week when Dad uh, brought the word of Christ. The old dog still got a bite, doesn't he? I mean, they did pretty good. Uh, he told me, he said, uh, you know, Al, they asked me over at WFR to come over and preach from Matthew 16 at the main church. I said, Dad, that was me. That's what I do now. I just so you know, <laughs> I mean, everybody was happy, but, you know, it was me. And uh, I was so excited. I was in California. Lisa and I were in California last week. We came through Texas. So I was on the road spreading the word of God. And so I, I settled in to watch our live stream. It was fantastic. The worship was so good last week. But I was very surprised. I was watching our wonderful live stream host, Rucker and Chris Ann Howard. And I was Surprised that my beloved vest came into the conversation last week during the, the, the pre-show, I guess you'd call it. And I didn't realize that, you know, it was the topic of conversation. And, and Rucker said that I needed to wear an alligator vest to spice things up a bit, which I thought was interesting. Especially coming from a guy who once said that not only do I deny the allegations, I deny the alligator. Uh, he said that at one time. He also coined the phrase that orange is the new black, uh, if you know Rucker's past. So, but you know, I, I was willing to give him a pass. Some of you is a little late. It's okay. It's all right. I'll wait. I gave him a pass because he's new. You know, he's just starting his, his career in ministry, and I love Rucker, and, you know, he's just so passionate about the, the Word of Christ. So I gave him a pass. But Chris Ann Howard... One of my oldest, and I mean oldest friends, and my next door neighbor, she said I couldn't wear an alligator vest because I had to have expandable vests. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she went there. But luckily, I took no offense because I don't take expandable vest advice from anyone who once almost choked on a Tic Tac. Tic-tac. That's a skinny esophagus. This was a, this is a woman who's never cast a shadow. A housekeeper once made up the bed with Chris Ann still in it because she thought she was a wrinkle. And when she goes to the grocery store, she has to wait for someone to come along to activate the sliding glass door. (laughs) Now, do you see what I did there, Perky? That was a joke inside of a joke, because why would she be at a grocery store, right? (laughs) Am I right? I kid, I kid. I love our live stream host. I I just want to encourage all live stream hosts in the future, feel free to make fun of me as much as you want. And I'll be sure to talk about you. All right, enough of this frivolity. Let's have Silas Williams come up. 
Silas is going to read our scripture. It says here that Silas likes to run. Is that true? You like to run? Yeah, I like to run occasionally. Uh, so are you named after Jason or Si? Do you know? You are? Oh, God help you, son. Um, we're going to pray for this young man. He's named after Si or Jace or both. Uh, but he's going to read our scripture today. I'm sure he'll do a great job. Matthew 17, 14 to 20. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Thank you, Silas. I appreciate that, buddy. So we are in uh, we're in Matthew uh, chapter 17 and 18 today. The last time uh, before Dad spoke last week, which which is what we kind of call the big reveal, because everything that led up to that moment where Jesus basically told them exactly what was going to go down and what the expectations were for them, which is going to be very difficult. Uh, because they had in their mind something different. And I don't know that they've fully wrapped their brains around it, which is why we get to 17 and 18. And it's sort of a continuation of what I call fortifying the faith of these disciples. Now, as we've been discovering, when Jesus fortifies the faith of those around him, it also fortifies our faith because we still face the same thing. Even though we know exactly what Jesus did and why he did it, we still have moments, right? We have moments just like they had, moments of little faith, moments where we just can't seem to get the job done, moments where we lose our trust, we lose our way, we lose our sight. And so we have to have that same fortification. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There are what I call three fortifying events that are going to take place in Matthew chapter 17. And the first one is spectacular. And it's sort of a reaffirmation. You remember when Jesus was baptized by John? You remember that the heavens opened, there was this voice that was just so loud and, and crystal clear that this is my son whom I love. And then there was this idea of the, the Holy Spirit coming down and said it, it looked almost like a dove and it was descending on him. And there was a moment where John would know this is the one who you've been proclaiming. And so we're going to have another moment like that. And for the same reason that that happened to fortify the faith of John the Baptist and to start Jesus' ministry, this is going to start the process that's going to lead up to his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that's really what the whole book of Matthew is about, revealing the moment that changed the world. And it's changed us to this very day. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Let's follow along. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. You see the same setting in Revelation before John. 
This idea of such a bright light that the person is literally glowing. Moses had something similar happen to him when he was up on Mount Sinai as the law came down. Just then, as he's shining like this, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So Jesus not only has transfigured before them, but now we have conjured up Moses and Elijah, who, by the way, both of them died under or left here under sort of what I would call suspicious supernatural experience. Moses went up on a mountain and said God buried him there, whatever that means. And, And Elijah left here, you know, literally on a fiery chariot. And here they are crossing time, crossing space. And appearing with Jesus before Peter, James, and John. Peter decides to speak, which he's quite frequently known to do when he should just be quiet. But he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, of all the things he could have said in that moment, I found that to be such an odd thing. That's like somebody getting up here and saying, you know, it's good to be here. What is that? That's just a kickoff. But that's what he says. If you wish... I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why would he do that? But bless him, right? That's what we say in the South, right? Bless his heart. He shook up. I mean, Jesus is shining. Moses and Elijah have shown up. What would you say? I would have tried to just say nothing. But he was nervous. And then he got interrupted by God. I mean, you talk about when you're babbling. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. He repeated exactly what he said when he was baptized, but he added one phrase. Listen to him. Say that with me. Listen to him. Now, that's important. That's a great addition. Because these three who are there, and now us, all these thousands of years later, if we're ever wondering, if we're having a faith moment, if we're having a crisis moment, the thing you can always do to reset is what? Listen to him. He always has a word to change our hearts and to change our lives. When the disciples heard this, now this is what you should be doing. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. You know, when when things from the supernatural world show up, people are terrified. You know, I see these pictures and they got little things floating around and, you know, androgynous looking beings. And everybody says, oh, look at that. What is that? If someone ever shows up from the other side, you're going to be terrified. According to what I read in the scripture, it's not going to be the little floaty things, you know, that, oh, isn't it cute? Let's go hug it. No, terrified. When the disciples were terrified, Jesus came, I love this moment, and he touched them. See, that's the difference. Remember I was mentioning Moses, he was glowing on Mount Sinai, had the law, and there was all this smoke and fire, and it was a scene a lot like this. And here he is again. And the people couldn't even touch the mountain, because God said, if you touch the mountain, you will die. Because that's the way it is with law. One breaking of the law and you die. Here they're terrified. We see this scene. There's all this bright clouds and what do we do? And Jesus touches them. This is going to be a new era. 
In this era, the God of all creation, the God of the universe, when you're afraid, will touch you. Man, don't you love that picture? Get up, he says. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Gone. Just him standing there. No glowing. What just happened? All these things. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing all the prophecy. Everything now is at the feet of Jesus. Listen to him. Everyone's lives are about to be changed. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So just like Dad talked about last week, we look ahead because he reminds them, Look, it's going to happen. Then the disciples said, Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? They still didn't quite get it. Jesus says, To be sure, Elijah comes, we'll restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. Talking about John the Baptist. But they have done everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Remember, this all started when they cut the head off of John the Baptist. Why? For telling the truth. And he said, the same thing is going to happen to me. Suffering and death for the salvation of mankind. It's an awful, brutal thing, but it had to be done. It's the only way we could achieve salvation. The only way. That terrifying mountain, we were never going to be able to keep the law. All the great prophecies and everybody wants to look ahead and end of times and eschatology and let's talk about all these things. None of that matters without Jesus. It doesn't. It's an interesting conversation. Listen to him. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So this was a fulfillment of law and prophecy. It also showed that Jesus had power over time and space and death. I mean, anybody could show up when Jesus is around. He's God. It's a reinforcement and an affirmation that the Father and the Spirit are with Jesus. And that was very important for them to know. And it was also a reminder of what he'd come to do. The next thing that happens, which is another sort of sign of fortification, is that Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. That the disciples, the key here is they didn't have the faith to drive out the demon. So the guy comes and he asks, and he said, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. So after he, he cast out this demon, disciples came to Jesus in private and they said, why couldn't we do it? Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You ever seen a mustard seed? It's really small. The idea is, it doesn't take grandiose, you know, on our knees eight hours a day praying, and that sort of, you know, stature that we imagine to be spiritual. It takes the beginning of a mustard seed. Now, it should grow. I'm not saying it should stay that size. It grows into a big, beautiful plant. Faith grows. But that's all it takes to be able to have the power is his point. 
we put it down and we look at other people and say, oh, well, look at sister so-and-so. Look at brother over there. I mean, man, look at how, look at their faith. Don't look at them. Look inside. Look inside and say, do I believe? Do I listen to him? Because if I do that, then nothing is impossible for me. Nothing. It highlighted their weak faith and ours. It shows the power over the spiritual realm and the demonics. I've told you all along, Jesus has power. Should we respect Satan? Absolutely. I mean, in the Bible, they wouldn't even say his name. I respect him and his power. And I respect what evil does. But they are not greater than God. Satan is not immortal. My God alone is immortal. And so I don't fear him as I fear God. You know why? Because his, his mastery over me to fear death, that's been defeated at the cross and the resurrection. Do you respect it? Absolutely. Do you know he's always out there scheming and patrolling and trying to do something and hook you into another bad thing? No doubt about it. But do not put your fear of Satan above your fear of God. You'll fail. We are called for more. And Jesus shows this. The last thing he does, which I find kind of interesting, is in Matthew 17, 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax. Now, let me just stop right there. We got enough taxes going on. If we started collecting taxes before you came in here, which is essentially what they were doing. You go to the temple. Where are you going there? To worship, to sacrifice, to do what God commands you to do. And someone has taken a tax. Come on, man. We got enough taxes. Amen. We don't need to be taxing to worship. But that's what they were doing. The two drachma temple tax. And so they asked Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? I don't know if Jesus just didn't, you know, go into the robes immediately while they asked the question. But he said he does. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own children or from others? Well, that changed over time. The U.S., they take it from the children. From others, Peter said, then the children are exempt. Now, he's speaking of, say, like an occupier like Rome. They're taking all these taxes from Israel and every other occupied country, and then they're funneling it back to Rome. That's what he meant. But the people of Rome were not hit nearly as hard as all these people they conquered. So he says the children are exempt. But so that we may not cause offense, we're going to pay. I love that about Jesus. Ah, two drama, two for me, two for you. We'll pay them. Now, Jesus is the creator of all things. We know he doesn't have a lot of money. Remember, he said he didn't have a place to lay his head. But he could have just like reached in his pocket, even though there wasn't anything there, and then come out with the four drachma, right? I mean, we see him do it before. He did it with bread. He did it with fish. He could have done, he could have done the old behind the ear and come out, whoa, look, the four drachma. Right? So what he does is he says, go to the lake and throw out your line. You're going to fish for some money. Now, how many of you like to fish in here? We got a few fishermen. That sounds like fun, right? 
we're going to go get some tax money. We're going to do it by fishing. Now, you would assume that meant you would catch some fish and go clean them and then sell them, right? No, not when you're the creator of the universe. Take the first fish you catch, very first one. I bet he didn't even have to make but one cast. Open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin in the mouth of the fish. Now, my question is, did Jesus know the fish had already swallowed a coin and had it right there and thought, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. Or did Jesus just create it in the fish's mouth? Mind blowing. Take it and give it to them for your tax and mine. It's almost playful to me. Maybe it wasn't, but it's almost like, you know, you guys like to fish. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Go down there, first cast, get the fish, the coin's in the mouth, you come back and you pay it. And you say, what does all that mean? You know what it means to me? It's all this stuff about the taxes and the temple and all this stuff that there. Jesus said, none of that matters. What matters is me. You want to pay temple tax? I can put it in the mouth of a fish and tell you right where to catch it. I'm wondering how many times they went back and tried that same hole again, right? You know they did. You fishermen, you know it. Well, if I could just get one in there with like a gold coin, we'd have something, right? The sun is above all things. Everybody looks at the temple and says, oh, look at this temple. It's amazing. Jesus said, ah, tear it down. Three days, I'll raise it back up. What is he talking about? He's talking about he's greater than the temple. We are greater than the temple. This place you look around in, man, we got to look at nice in there. Just a room. Been here a long time. When it was first built, I was about this tall. Just a room. You, you are the temple. The Holy Spirit lives in you. That's how great you are. And there's no temple tax to get me to say, we want to worship God. At any drop of the hat, and I'll drop the hat. And I will pass it because I was a preacher for a long time. But it doesn't matter. What matters is when we listen to him. That's the message. That's what fortifies the faith. There are three questions that were asked in chapter 18. And I think all of them are important. Because this is where it really starts to lock in for the disciples. And I believe it locks in for us. The first one came in the first 14 verses. And they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We all know who the greatest is, right? Cassius Clay used to tell us he was the greatest. Then he was Muhammad Ali and he was still the greatest. A lot of people tell you how great they are. My dad taught me when I was growing up, son, don't tell people how great you are. If other people say you're great, give them a thumbs up. Don't tell people how great you are. Be humble. I didn't know it, but he got that right from this passage. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? And you know what they were thinking as they were all standing there? Might it be me? Well, Jesus stuns them. He brings a kid over. Hey, tell that little kid to come over here. Kids looking around, wondering what's. If it's not happen, there's the greatest. You don't become like this guy, like this little girl. You don't understand what this is about. 
I just boiled it all down for you. A childlike innocence to just say, I'll listen, do what I'm told. That's what you do. Unless you humble yourselves, he said, unless you have that heart of humility, you'll never understand or see the kingdom of God. And there are so many people that miss it. They spend their entire lives trying to empower themselves to be greater than other people. And then for you to recognize how great they are. More likes, more thumbs up, more whatever to make me great. You miss it with the kingdom. Are you like a little kid? You know, they don't let us go. They don't let us rightfully so go over and watch the kids. But if you could just go over and watch them right now, what's going on over there? That's what he said you should be like. Man, it's so simple to have a heart of humility. And yet it's so difficult because the world around us says, no, what are you? Are you someone to be stepped on, stepped over? Yeah, pretty much. That's great. Greatness. And you want to preserve the innocence. He says, if anyone were to harm this child, oh, boy, bad things are going to happen to you. Now, there's a message we could use in our culture. You see what's going on in education? To hurt and harm children? To turn their minds into poison against other Americans? Ooh, look out, Millstone. There's some necks. They're going to, it's going to be go around and we're going in the water. He says, I want a rejection of that. You know, and Adam and Eve could not wait to eat that fruit so they could know about evil. If only they could have just held on to the childlike innocence, right? I want to know all the good. I don't even want to know the evil. Because you all know just what I know, right? Once you know it, you can't unknow it. And you deal with that for the rest of your life. Something goes off in our minds. We were children, and then we were children no more. Everything we do in the kingdom of God is to humble ourselves to go back to that reset. I want to trust I want to listen, and I don't want evil in my life, and I don't want it in anybody's life. And the last thing that I want to do is harm other children and put that in their minds. He says, look out. Second question is 15 through 20, and it's an implied question. He doesn't actually, no one asks him, but he says, here's how he begins in verse 15. If your brother sins against you. So the question is, If we're going to be like little kids, and that's going to be our mindset, how do we deal with the weaknesses and the faults that are going to come? Because I don't know about you, but I can watch my grandkids for about five minutes, and somebody's upset about something. I mean, it just keeps happening over and over again. Pab, we did this. Pab, she did that. Ma'am, it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you're just like, hey, quit that. You know, stop that. Go outside. Get out of here. That's how I deal with it. But you know what? Five minutes later, they're back playing. They're laughing. They seem to take no long-term offense. I don't come in three days later and say, you know, and he took the iPad. I just can't get past that, Pat. 
Just move on. So that's what he tells us to do. Everything he says in 15 through 20 is an attitude that makes it right with someone else. He says, find the common ground. Go to them. What if you have a problem with somebody? Well, go to them. Work it out. Make it right. Well, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't make it right. Well, take somebody with you. Take someone that you both trust and make it right. Well, they still then get the church and get your get your community involved. Make it right is the point. We want to get past things again with the mindset of a little child. There are people that have blown up about something. Well, 22 years ago in my church, the pastor said this. I've never forgotten it. You missed it then. That's not how we deal with each other. Are you kidding me? We make it right. It's the heart of unity. Just like the heart of humility gets us to this place. And it leads us to the last thing he said in eighteen twenty-one through 35. And this is a question. Peter came to him and he said, how many times, it says shall, but really, what's he saying? How many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Peter's like, I'm going to be a good guy. Seven times. That's a lot. You know what Jesus' response was? Who's counting? I want you to say seven times 70. If you just want to have a number. Who's counting? Can you imagine if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were to count how many times that I've been forgiven? Or you? If they're keeping count, do we really want a number? I don't. I like the philosophy of, I will forgive them and remember their sins no more. That's the heart. So how am I going to be humble? How am I going to be unified to my brother or my sister, to my wife, to my kids? By being willing to forgive. That's the whole point of the parable. He tells a parable. To show this, but really the heart of it is, can I have a heart of forgiveness? And you and I both know, stepping on someone's foot in an elevator, that's a pretty easy one. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Oh, no worries. And you ride down. You don't even think about it again. But when you have an affair, or when you betray someone, or you steal money from them, or commit a crime against someone's family, that one's a little bigger, right? Please forgive me. How many times must I forgive? We want to go back to a number, right? How many times has this person failed? I was put in a position many years ago where I had to forgive a betrayal. And it was a big one. And to be honest with you, I didn't know if I had it in me. How many times, I remember thinking, must I forgive for this relationship to go forward? And then I remembered, I will forgive and remember your sins no more. If I'm going to forgive somebody, I have to do it the way God forgave me. That means that the next time something happens, I don't bring it up. 
when God forgives, he doesn't bring it back up. He says, it's gone. Yeah, but I'm not God. I realize that. Neither am I. But if I at least don't make that attempt, I will never have a heart of forgiveness. What I will have is a launching pad for the next time we get into an argument. And it'll keep stirring until finally we get to the point and say, you know what? This relationship doesn't matter. I married the wrong person. You know what? You want to live that way? You just get out there and live it, son. We want to make it right. That's the point. So if three questions had to be answered for the apostles, why would they not have to be answered for us today? Can I be humble? Can I be humble? Can I be unified to the point that I would love people that I disagree with? And can I forgive when I'm wronged? Because Jesus made it pretty plain. If you can't forgive others, you're going to have a hard time embracing the forgiveness of God. That's it. What I love about all this is that Jesus is the person that he was describing to them. Childlike humility came to this earth to give himself for us. He was resurrected to show that we could have life forever. Even this very moment, this Sunday morning, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's waiting to come back and get us. But while he's there, he's not just, you know, playing cards. He's mediating for our sins. Yep, that's my son. Dennis, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's my son. To this very day. This 11, 12 minus 1, plus 1, plus 1, 13 people changed the world. Because when Jesus died, when he was buried, when he was resurrected, and when they saw him go back and promising he would come back, they changed the world. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be sharing with other people. So that's for you, and that's for me. What a text to fortify. I don't know about you, but I feel fortified test, test, test. when I realize what my God has done for me. If you're in need of some fortification today, I get it. We fall short. We make mistakes. That may be where you are today. Maybe you just felt distance. Maybe you got something you need to square up with somebody. Man, today's a great day to send an email, make a call. I've had to ask forgiveness many times through my years of work for the church. Because, you know, you get up here and you get to blustering and preaching and, you know, especially when you're young, think you know everything. I've hurt people before. And I've hurt them thinking I was helping them. I've had to make a lot of phone calls, send a lot of long emails. Please forgive me. That was dumb. That's humble. That's what we do. That's humility. We want to be right. If you got one of those in your life, maybe in your family, why don't you make the first move? Why don't you send that letter before the holidays and say, you know what, I miss you. Whatever we got going on, let's let's fix it. That's what Christianity is about. Forgive me, brother. Forgive me, sister. If you need that today, in any area of your life, today's a good day to do it. If you need to become a Christian, Man, today's the day to embrace Christ. We baptize somebody back here just about every week. That's that new birth, that idea about I'm leaving it all behind. And just like that proclamation was made, this is my son, this is my daughter, that's what that moment's about. 
You're declaring to the public that you are in because you love Jesus. Listen to him. If you have a need, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?